I am so glad that you are with us this morning, and, and I want you to know that my hope and my prayer for you is the same as it is for every single person who is here with us present, who's watching online, and that's simply this, that no matter where you find yourself in your faith today, I hope and I pray that you will take one step towards Jesus, because that's what we are all about here at Crossbridge, and so I'm thankful for that. Uh, how many of you have ever played the game horse, the basketball game of horse? Okay, we're, we're talking about this a little bit in our setup pre-time, and if you've never played the game of horse, it's very, very simple. Uh, if you and I were playing, I would take a shot. If I make that basket, you have to make the basket. If you miss it, you get the letter H, and whoever spells the word horse first loses. Makes sense, right? So the goal of the game really is to take a shot that your opponents can't make. So, you know, it, it just becomes fun. You see people taking really stupid shots from behind the backboard. They're trying to bounce it, no looking, granny shots like this. It's fun. But when I was growing up and where I grew up, and I, I did learn that there was a little bit of a difference here because I grew up in North Jersey. Where we grew up, we had a rule on the last letter of horse. And this rule was called prove it. And here was the deal. If you made the shot on the last letter, and the other person didn't, you didn't win until you made the shot again. So you would tell them, you gotta prove it. So this way, it kept those stupid shots off the table in the end. It always gave you a shot to come back and be like, I could do this, we're gonna get it. And, and that rule was prove it, prove it. Prove that you could do this and that that shot you made wasn't luck. What's funny with this idea of prove it is we carry this expectation of prove it throughout our life with us, whether we recognize it or not. And the phrase prove it, it comes out in a lot of different ways. So we don't always say that, but I will tell you culturally, I think we are masters, masters at communicating this to each other. Uh, if, if anything that someone says doesn't line up with the way that they live, and we don't think they could do it, what do we tell them? Prove it. Come on, prove it. As kids, this was great. You remember when someone boasted about meeting someone famous and we're like, yeah, prove it. Yeah, well, my dad could do this or my mom does it. Yeah, prove it. And, and they're so just like, Bleh. and there's always that tone with it. You know that tone? Yeah, prove it. As adults, we carry the same skepticism. We do. We just verbalize it a little more subtly. As we get a little older, especially as teens, you've mastered the eye roll, okay? The eye roll, that's, yeah, prove it. Yeah, whatever, prove it, right? We, I've seen that one. I've, I've done that one. We make comments under our breath as we walk away, questioning if they could do it or not. Anybody else do that besides me? Yeah, right, whatever, okay. Um, right, we do this. My favorite is as someone's boasting, I, um, there's a confession, I will try to monetize it. Yeah, put your money where your mouth is. Come on, if you say you could do this, let me, you, you can make a half-court half shot twice, prove it. Put your money where your mouth is. Let me see you do this. We do this to each other, I think, because when there is something about a way a person lives that doesn't match up with what they have claimed they can do, it frustrates us. And we want to make sure that they know there's something off. And unfortunately, while I, I know this is a pattern for our culture, I do believe that this is one of the areas the church of Jesus Christ has struggled with for a long, long time. 
We say many times that we believe in Jesus. We say that we believe in his teachings and want to follow them. But let's just be real. There's no proof in the way that we live, right? There's no proof in our everyday life that this happens. And don't, don't feel like I'm judging you today and trying to get on you about this today because let's just, this has been a pattern throughout church history. Actually, it's been a pattern through almost all religious organizations and gatherings. There is issues when it comes to living out faith. And it's been happening for thousands of years. And I bring it up because as we continue in our series through the book of James, both James and Jesus talk about this issue. Talk about what we say and what we do. And I know last week was a little bit difficult as we walked through what it means to be judgmental, but it's important not to show favoritism, but to kind of look at what we do and how we handle life. So with that in mind, would you turn with me to the letter of James? It'll be all the way in the back of your Bible. And if you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you one. Uh, we just think it's the most life-giving book ever. So um, it'll be all the way in the back. We're going to continue this week in chapter 2. We're going to start, jump down to verse 14 with me. It says this. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Now, last week he started out with a really tough question. He does this. We're going to have to get used to this over the next couple of weeks. A really pointed question. Suppose you see a brother or a sister who has no food or clothing and you say, goodbye, have a good day, stay warm, eat well. But then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? Okay, let's just pause. You can exhale, okay? If you feel like you struggle with living your faith out, if you have dedicated your life to following Jesus and said, this is what I want to do, if you say, this is hard and I'm having trouble doing it, can we all just announce together, we all struggle with this. We, the, you're not alone today, all right? I think this is an area of spiritual life that we will always, as long as we breathe, the breath that God has given us, we will always be growing in this. There will always be space to mature in our faith. So you do not today, in taking a little bit from last week, get to look around to show favorites, to judge others, and say, well, at least I live it out better than they do. Nope. You don't get to look anywhere else around you because this is addressed right here. James is calling each person in the church, and he calls the church and in general around that region to say, listen, does what you say line up with how you're living? And his example is so great. I just love it. Suppose you have a brother or sister with no food or no clothes. He's not talking about fixing a problem in the entire world that needs to be addressed. He's not saying, you know, we need to take care of all these massive things. No, look at the practical things in your everyday life. Look around you right now. And if you see someone who's around you and they're naked and they're hungry and then you just leave them, wishing them a good day and reminding them like, hey, stay warm, stay well fed. What, what good would this do? Can we all agree We're like this would do no good? This makes no sense to us. It makes absolutely no sense. Who would do this? And I will say, well, while it's not leaving someone lying in the street for many of us, hungry and naked, I think we all do this. We all do this. And James's example 
in, in James 2, the equivalent for that today for us would be one of my favorite Christian phrases that we use. It's simply, my thoughts and my prayers are with you. My thoughts and my prayers are with you. Don't get me wrong. I believe that prayer has the power to absolutely change the world that we live in. And we should absolutely be praying for those in need. But let's just be real. Can we be real at Crossbridge Transparent? This is a phrase so many people say when we don't know what else to say. When we don't have the words for someone, we're like, oh, I'll, be, I'll pray for that. Do you really pray for that? Or is that just your way out of the conversation? Or your way to stop it so that it doesn't get even weirder? Do you, do you, do you actually, how many of us stop and plead with God on behalf of the pain of the person that we were with for whatever that is? No, we stop and we say, my thoughts and my prayers are with you. If they're hungry and they're cold or they're lonely and they're grieving, does walking away, wishing them our best thoughts and prayers, do them any good? Well, James kind of answers this question. Verse 17, let's jump in. Verse 17 and 18, he says, so you see, faith by itself isn't enough unless it produces good deeds. It's dead and useless. Now, someone may argue, some have faith and others have good deeds, but I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. Now, if we claim to follow Jesus, our deeds and our good works, they, they matter. There's no way to get around that in this passage, that they matter because without them, James says, our faith is dead and it is useless. I, I know this probably triggers some of you right now. I could see it in your eyes because it's about all I could see. Um, I could tell this is triggering you. I see the way you're sitting, you're looking, and, and I know that our church is made up of so many different types of people from different pathways that have brought you here spiritually, that we have people who have been in uh, church or religious communities their entire life and some of them who have no religious background whatsoever. So if you're here and you have no church background and you're thinking, why would this trigger somebody? It just makes sense. If you say you believe something, it should be worked out. No problem. Perfect. Just hang out for a second. You haven't caught in the Bible to the side of the head like many of us have. For others of you, if you have grown up in, and I know because of our relationship to Philadelphia and the high Catholic background there, if you've grown up in a Catholic tradition or you've grown up in a more fundamental tradition or even some of the more liturgical traditions of Christianity, uh, you, you're having some tension right now, and I get it. Your hearts, your minds are anxious. Am I going to tell you you have to work harder? Listen, many of these traditions, for those who don't know, they have used the book of James. They have used the book of James as um, a way to guilt and to shame people into obedience. Now, the evangelical tradition we're part of has its own issues that we have to address, but here we can look and say, this book has been used um, against people. Many of us have heard, if you want... Jesus to love you, then you know what you need to do? You need to sin less and you need to work harder. That's how you get Jesus to love you. We almost take the scripture that tells us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling and, and 
we hear it replaced with work for your salvation with fear and trembling. Has anybody else felt this besides me in, in your faith walk? Please, just let me know I'm not alone here. That you feel like you've got to work for this sometimes. I, I get this. When you sin and you mess up, work harder. Give more money to the church to cover those sins. It's your guilt offering, right? It, believe, it's silly, but believe it or not, this was a practice in church history. Does anybody know what this practice was called of giving money to help cover your sins? Indulgences. indulgences. Nailed it, Ben. Nailed it. Love it. This was a practice called indulgences. And this practice throughout church history was actually one of the things that caused the second biggest division ever in the church. How many of you have, have ever heard of Martin Luther before? Martin Luther. I'm not talking about the Reverend King Martin Luther. I'm talking about Martin Luther, the 16th century Catholic German priest. What's wild about him is as he was a priest in the Roman Catholic Church, he was, uh, it was about 1500 in that, the first quarter of that century. And he stepped into this pastoring and priesthood at a time when the church really, really promoted these good deeds and giving more as the people's way to earn their way into heaven or to burn off the sin. Even worse was for the people who have died and gone before them. The, the church was teaching that if you gave more on their behalf, they get through purgatory faster. A lot of this was to help build one of the biggest churches in Rome at the time. They were trying to raise money. And so when this came to town, Martin Luther had some issues with it. And in 1517, he uh, wrote up a document that went straight to the church. It wasn't meant to divide. It was meant to, to try to gain clarity on this. And he pushed back and he began to talk a lot more about how God alone can save us through grace. That it's not about what we do. It's not about what we give. It's not by works. And because he began to take a stance on this, he was excommunicated from the church and like hunted down. Um, this is when the Protestant church began. This was the biggest divide. As, as he began to train new priests, what's funny is he took the Bible and began to translate it into German, into common people German. So if you're ever wrestling through like, what, what translation should I read? One that you understand, okay? That's what Martin Luther is doing. He's writing in a way that his nation would understand. And as he began to write it, there was one book in his school and in his writing that he started to have major issues with. One book of the Bible that he was like, mm, I don't like this one. Any idea? It was the book of James. It was this book, this book. Uh, this is actually one of the things that he said and he taught. He says, therefore, St. James's epistle is really, look at this, an epistle of straw compared to these others for it has nothing of the nature of the gospel about it. He calls it an epistle of straw. He did not like this letter in comparison to all the other letters that St. Paul writes in the New Testament. And his biggest issue was it, it, it just contradicted these other letters. It seemed to promote this doctrine of work harder, not a doctrine or a theology of justification, which simply means being made right in God's eyes through faith alone. Right? He really didn't like it because of this. And, and I do wonder, because that's what I do, is if James's own history with his traditions, if his context and his abuse that he caught from this book, 
that it was wielded as a weapon against him and against the people really had a different layer of pain for him reading this, that it triggered him. As for it really having nothing of the nature of the gospel in it, uh, honestly, I think if you look at this letter of James and then you look at the words and the teachings of Jesus, I think Jesus could have sued his brother for copyright infringement, right? If, if they were going to go down that road, he could have sued his brother for copyright infringement. Um, it, it does only mention the name of Jesus twice in this entire letter, but it mirrors his heart in every single chapter that we read. But the truth remains that these verses for many of us have been used to shame us, have been used to scare us into doing more things to earn or preserve our salvation. I don't think that James believes this by any means. I don't think he means that we have to work harder and do more to earn our salvation or to keep it. I think what, he's, what he says is, and the best way that I could sum it up is, works don't lead to salvation. They're a result of it. Hey, let me say that again for you. And if you have your cards, uh, feel free to grab them off the sides. You want to write this down. You want to remember this one, okay? Works don't lead to salvation. They are a result of it. We cannot do anything to earn salvation, being separated from God. We cannot work our way back to God. It only comes through placing our trust in the life, in the death, and in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God's only son. And when we do this, we are filled with the Holy Spirit who empowers us to live out this faith because you and I, we cannot do this alone. So if we say, yes, I have faith in Jesus out loud and we proclaim this to the people around us, but there is no good works in our life. What type of faith is this? James would simply say this, this is a dead faith. This is a useless faith. Faith is not expressed by knowing all of the right answers and knowing all the laws and commands that are found in the Bible. As you begin to learn this more and more, do you know what that's called? Knowledge. And gaining knowledge is great. It's great. Except when it's not, like the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, when he says, we all know that we all possess knowledge. He's saying like, we, we, we all can learn more about this, right? But knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Listen, you may know and boast about how to make the best cookies in all the world. And you can keep this recipe to yourself and know it. But if you do nothing with this, if you don't make cookies with this, guess how useful that recipe is? It's useless. It's dead recipe. You're not doing anything with it. If you don't mix the ingredients together and let me try them for myself, <clears throat> you just know about the best cookies. And now you're taunting me. Now you're, now you're dangling something in front of me that you have no desire to prove. Love would be putting that knowledge into practice and building up my waistline. Crossbridge loved me, right? Listen, when it comes to our faith in Jesus, the only way that it can truly be expressed is in practical, loving obedience to God's word. Practical, loving 
obedience. This has to work itself out into our everyday life. I'm not saying it's not about the thoughts and the prayers. Yes, yes, but what if you and I are the answer to the prayer and it's enough time to stop sitting there praying and it's time to start doing something about that? No more hiding behind thoughts and prayers. It's time to start doing something. I love James' argument on why knowledge isn't enough. And in verse 19, he says, you say that you have faith for you believe that there is one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe this and they tremble in terror. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? Can you see he's trying to prove a point here? He's saying this over and over. And I love this because I like to read the Bible and it like punches me in the face sometimes. This has done that. And I think it would have done that to the original readers, these Jewish communities. And last week we talked about how there were two royal laws that they held to. One was in Leviticus 19 to love your neighbor. The other... James actually pushes on right here. And, and he pushes on when he says that you believe that there is only one God. So if you have your Bibles, you can underline that circle, that highlighted one God. And the reason for this is, is uh, the Jewish tradition at this point in history is really, as much as we understand about history, the only monotheistic faith simply meaning that they believe that there is only one God. Everybody else was polytheistic. They had, they had so many different gods to pray to. The sun, the moon, fertility, grass, water. It didn't matter. You prayed to everybody. But the Jewish tradition was only one God who controls all the cosmos, who created you. And so they believed this simply because it was the second royal law that they held to in the book that we are soaping right now. You would have, if you walk through the guide, you would see it in the guide for Deuteronomy chapter 6. It simply says this, Hear, O Israel, and this is God speaking, The Lord our God, the God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. In the Jewish tradition, this passage is known as the Shema. It is one of the most important and integral prayers to the Jewish tradition. That is prayed morning, afternoon, evening. It set this nation apart so that they took pride in knowing that their faith was different. They knew it. James calls it out in verse 19, which is, I think when we look at verse 19, this reinforces to me over and over why. Sometimes I think we just need to read the Bible out loud because when we read it in our mind, we just check. We have to read it out loud. Check out verse 19. You just read it in your head for a second. Tone here is going to be everything. You say that you have faith, for you believe that there is one God. Good for you! Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. Big deal. Big deal is what James is saying. You're not the only one who knows about God. The devil and the demons know about God too. And if you think that faith is about knowing, great, you start out on the same exact page as the enemy of your soul. Great. The only difference between a demon's faith and your faith at this point is that they actually believe what they know and because of that they tremble in terror before Jesus. Their knowledge and their faith in Jesus doesn't inspire them to love and good deeds. No, no, it brings terror is the demon's faith. It's almost like he's saying in this moment the demons have a better theology and understanding of God than some followers of Jesus do. At least they shudder before his power and authority. 
I think too many Christians cling to the false security of knowledge of Scripture to prove our salvation. Maybe we don't do all the work stuff, but we, if we know more and we study more, I'll have all the right answers to shut people down. If I could prove that I'm right and everyone else is wrong, then everyone else is sure to believe what I believe because it's great to argue people to follow Jesus, right? L- let me just tell you as the guy with the Bible degree and theology degree, people do not care how much you know until they know how much you care. They just don't. People don't care how much you know. They don't care if you know where that verse is found, where this is from. They, they don't. If someone is cold and hungry, they don't need a lesson on how the poor will inherit the kingdom of God from Matthew chapter 5. They don't need to know God's healthy view of work habits from Proverbs. No. You know what they need? They need a sandwich and a jacket. That's what they need. If someone is lonely and they're grieving, they don't need someone to tell them. You know what? It's, it's all going to work out. God is in control of all things and he's going to work all things out for the good of those who are called according to Christ Jesus in this moment. It's okay. You'll get through this. What? They don't, they don't need someone to teach them in that moment that I know you're lonely, but remember, God's omnipresent. Let me tell you what this means. And break. No, you know what they need? They need a friend. They need a present friend who's going to sit with them. They need someone who's going to cry with them as they mourn. You know how much I love the Bible. I get made fun of it in our church. I'm fine with that. This is my life and breath every morning, afternoon, and evening as I try to dive into Scripture. It comes alive, and I want to learn and know so much about this. It's wisdom, it's lessons, but all the knowledge that I could ever gain from this book is pointless if it does not deepen my awareness of God's love for me and then work itself out in how I love others around me. This should absolutely result in us doing something. There's no way that we can read the words of Jesus and sit on it and go, that was nice. So pleasant. He's so great. Not because I have to do these things, but I'm invited to as I live out a life of Jesus. And and James closes out that passage um, with two examples, one from Abraham and one from Rahab. Go back and read them in the Old Testament. They're beautiful, beautiful stories of what faith in deeds looks like but he sums them both up in verse 22 and verse 26 and he says this you see his and he's talking about abraham here he says his faith and his actions worked together his actions made his faith complete just as the body is dead without breath so also faith is dead without good works when when we have faith and truly believe that god is going to do what he says he's going to do and we have this birth of actions and good works, and they come together, I think there's something in our soul that just comes alive. Something feels different. Our faith becomes complete. And when James uses that word complete, it's the same exact word that we talked about last week from James chapter 1. When Jesus' goal and James's goal for every believer in Jesus' faith is that they would become teleos, that they would become mature in their faith, not lacking in anything. When our time with God in the word inspires us into practical loving obedience, living out truly what Jesus teaches, and then, and then we see the impact of what it means to show up and do these things, it, it'll inspire us to be back in the word because we want to know how Jesus did it and what he did. And as we do this, we try to live this out. And as we live this out, we're so inspired that we want to get back. Do you see how this works? 
You can't have one without the other. If you spend all your time in the word ignoring people, there's no love for the world around you. But if you spend all your time serving and going nuts for people and bending over and giving them everything they need at all times, you're giving out of yourself, not out of the love of God. And now you're going to be ticked at them, aren't you? They become burdens, not blessings. We need to work and to serve out of the place of love, not guilt, not shame. Because remember, works don't lead to salvation. They are simply a result of it. And since Martin Luther made such a stink about it 500 years ago, about this being an epistle of straw with no nature of the gospel in it, I'd simply like to read to you what Jesus says about this. In the end of his famous Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 7, it's this unbelievable story in in Matthew's biography of Jesus. If you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 7, I'd encourage you, if you ever want to know what Jesus says and asks of us, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Just, that's it. Just read there for now. This is what it means in this whole Sermon on the Mount. It's his all new teaching, new commands. This is how he sums up all of these topics that he's talked about in verse 15. He says, Beware of the false prophets who come disguised as harmless sheep, but they are really vicious wolves. You can identify them how? By their... You can identify them by their fruit, that is, by the way that they act. It sounds like James, doesn't it? Sounds, maybe, maybe that was something Mary and Joseph said at home. I don't know. But then Jesus gives an example, just like his brother does. Can you pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? A good tree produces good fruit, and a bad tree produces bad fruit. We're going to talk about this next week. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. So every tree that does not produce good fruit is chopped down and thrown into the fire. Yes. Just as you can identify a tree by its fruit, so you can identify people by their actions. He didn't say that we should judge people by their actions. But what he says is that what we do or don't do will identify us as followers of Jesus. We don't get to judge each other, but these are identifiers to the people around us. And he continues by saying, not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We perform many miracles in your name. But I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me. You who break God's laws. This passage terrifies and inspires me at the same exact time. And I don't know how that works. It terrifies me because there's nothing I fear more than hearing, I never knew you on judgment day. Which inspires me because it's simply an invitation from God to say, so then get to know me more. So then get to know me. Know me now, Jimmy. It's not about doing the good things or doing the religious things. Our life has to simply be about doing only what God has asked us to do. That's it. So what are we supposed to do? This is how Jesus closes it out. Anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise. Like a person who builds his house on solid rock. 
Though the rain comes in torrents and the floodwaters rise and the winds beat against the house, it won't collapse because it is built on bedrock. Bedrock, circle that word in your Bibles if you have it. We're going to come back to that in a second. Anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey it is foolish. Like a person who builds a house on sand. When the rains and floods come and the winds beat against the house, it'll collapse with a mighty crash. What does Jesus call us to do? Listen to his teaching. And then do it. Listen and do. And when he says that it's a person who lives their life, like the wise person puts this in and it's like building your house on the bedrock in that verse. The Greek word there is the word Petra. And if that sounds familiar to you, it's because it's a major city in the world and a major, uh, one of the seven major uh, modern wonders of the world. And it's located in the country of Jordan, which are, we are regularly praying for. The city itself of Petra is huge. It's huge with space to hold over 10,000 people at one time. But unlike the other cities that were around in the day, it was carved completely out of rock. Completely out of rock. And what you're looking at right here is this is the temple or the monastery that's over 800 steps, which the steps are really not like this. They're not like, they would fail every test to get up to the spot. It's exhausting to get up there. And, and as you work to get up there, this spot right here, this temple or monastery is over 150 feet wide as well as high. Okay, and, and it took a while to carve this out. It is giant. That is a handful of us for scale right in front. It, it's ginormous. And what's wild about this is it's carved out of the rock and this was being carved at almost the exact same time Jesus is speaking these words about 200 miles north. At the same century, same time, this is being carved out of the rock, the Petra. What Jesus is saying in this parable is, you want something to last for thousands of years? It's not drywall. It's not two by fours. You need to get through the sand. You need to dig through the ground to get to where the rock is, to get to where it's solid and build on the bedrock. That means we need to be patient with each other to work through the garbage of our life. We need to be able to know that we're going to fail at things. We're not going to hear God clearly all the time. But if we're going to dig to the bedrock, if we're going to dig down into our own life, it's crucial that we don't just stop and say, great, I see it, I'll do it. No, it has to apply to us first. Then we can take it out. And when our life is built on bedrock, I almost wonder if it doesn't matter how impressive we are now. If people know our names or if we're out there and, and rich or famous, I wonder if the story of our faith truly built on Jesus isn't told until 2,000 years later. And at the time, it's just whatever. It's another building out of a rock. But 2,000 years later, it's our kids, our grandkids, our great-grandkids. It's who knows down the line that has been changed because we listened and then we did it. So my question today for you is simply, what is your faith built on? Is it built on knowledge? Is it knowing the right answers? Is it built on good deeds? 
and constantly feeling like you have to do more to earn the love of people around you and God and his forgiveness? Listen, your faith can't be either or here. And if your faith was like the game of horse today, how many times are your family, co-workers, and the people right next to you going to say, yeah? It's cool that you said that. Prove it. You follow Jesus? Yeah. Prove it. How many times are you going to sit across the table at lunch? Prove it. Does what you say line up with what you believe? Does the way that you live life look any different from someone who does not follow Jesus? You know, when I played basketball up in North Jersey all the time and I got asked to prove it, I actually, uh, I got excited because I got to prove what I was practicing. I'd practice those trick shots sometimes just to stick it to them, you know? I saw it every time as an opportunity. I saw it as an invitation. I saw this as like a, you get the ball back. You get to take another shot. It was amazing. And in a culture that, let's just be clear, we don't really listen to each other at all, do we? We're not good listeners. How much you know is going to be insignificant to the people around you, but when you show up and you love through actions, those words will be heard. When you love out of how you've been loved through Christ, that's how we look different. People aren't going to care what you know. This isn't your opportunity to wrestle them and beat them with the Bible to tell them all the things they have to know. When you keep showing up and I keep showing up, they'll say, you're different. Why are you different? We could say, because Jesus was different. That's all I got. So this week, would you do me a favor and pay attention for the opportunities, the practical opportunities right in front of you this week? Live out what you know. And if you're new and you're trying to figure out like who Jesus is, just go to Matthew 5, 6, 7. Start there. It's plenty. Stop when something challenges you and try to live it out today. I would love for us to go into love like Jesus with our words, with our actions. With our words and with our actions.